Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Julian Russell. Julian is the CEO at HQ Theatres and Hospitality, a commercial organisation which runs 12 principal cultural assets UK wide on behalf of the relevant local authorities. Um, Julian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. You're very welcome and thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure, Julian, welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. It's very much what we're all about, getting the authentic voices of every corner of British industry out there. And normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has hung over us like a dark cloud throughout this year, I do feel it's appropriate that we begin from that angle. Because it's proven to be such a significant challenge, hasn't it, for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and for HQ Theatres and Hospitality in particular, to what extent has it all affected things? Well, it's had um, uh, an extraordinary and seismic um, and probably an indelible impact on, on our sector. Obviously, theatres, culture, leisure, experience economy has been um, widely uh, hit, um, particularly, obviously, due to the fact that... Um, in our, our business and many others like us, we remain closed. And back in, in March, when instructions were given to, to close theatres um, and others in, in our sector, uh, we we closed our venues and um, we, uh, for an uncertain, unknown period of time, we anticipated opening up probably a number of weeks later. Um, fast forward six months, uh, we're still closed. We're still um, in active hibernation. Um, it's been an extraordinary um, period of time uh, for, for um, our sector, obviously. Uh, but my uh, prime concern, uh, and, and remain very concerned and, and close to uh, um, the welfare of our, our workforce. Um, I mean, clearly, this has had a, it's mm. quite an extraordinary impact. The uncertainty remains, and uncertainty on on the impact of people's livelihoods, their careers. Um, has just been quite extraordinary. Um, um, I mean, the commercial impact organisations such as ourselves, uh, literally in, in, in from the middle of March till now, income streams have, have frozen, have ceased up, um, costs obviously still remain. And so it's a constant battle for uh, survival. Um, and uh, we, you know, we're confident, very confident that um, m- many organisations such as ourselves will re- re- return. Uh, at, at what point in time in the future, we don't know, but will return. We'll look very different to the organisation that we were in March when, when we closed. Um, I suspect uh, in many ways we'll be more resilient, uh, more robust. We certainly will have learned an awful lot about um, each other. Mm-hmm. about our business um, and uh, we hope to and plan to put that education, that le- learning to, to very good use um, in, in the future. But it's, it's going to, it's going to and will um, continue obviously with the uncertainty, it will leave a very permanent and indelible mark on, on us as a business and, and uh, as individuals. Mm. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, I am confident that we will uh, uh, find a way to, to carefully navigate our way through these particularly difficult times to, to uh, a more positive uh, place in, in, in the future. But what collateral damage we, we mm. will uh, experience on, on the way is, is really yet to be determined. It is. It's going to be a very uncertain time for the industry, that is for sure. And you talk about ongoing uncertainty as being a major problem, particularly in terms of people's mental health and well-being. So with that in mind, in terms of the people that you work with, what sort of steps have you put in place to try and safeguard that? Well, I mean, I mean obviously, first and foremost, we um, applaud the government for a job retention scheme that um, saved, obviously, our, our business and many others to ensure that we were able to protect the financial well-being of, of our workforce to, to a large degree and I'm pleased to, to say that um, we haven't as yet made any redundancies and our intention is not to do that. Um, um, we were recently very fortunate on securing um, a grant via the Cultural Recovery Fund which enables us now to be able to protect the workforce and, and secure their in, in employment at all such time we're confident we can reopen although there's uncertainty around that. We certainly have got a plan in place to protect core skills and, and protect the workforce until such time we can uh, reopen. Um, so we've been able to take advantage of that. We're also privately funding the extension to the further us ourselves to maintain our work, workforce. So give them some confidence that at some point in time in the future, they will be able to return to employment to do what they do best and what they love to do. Alongside that, we, we we implemented a number of initiatives to make sure that we can support the, the mental well-being uh, of our workforce and, and those associated with the organisation. I mean, you know, we're we're inherently a busy, creative, entrepreneurial um, uh, sector, and therefore stimulation um, and working together uh, in, in intimate, creative spaces uh, is, is something that we we do. So when that is stripped away from you literally overnight, the, the, the impact that that has. Uh, it is absolutely staggering. So we've kept in contact, regular contact. We built a, a community hub platform where we put a huge amount of content, such live streaming, information on, on, on how to look after yourself, creative stuff on how to bake and how to cake and stuff that keeps people stimulated, keeps them connected to, to, to our organisation. There's a huge amount of love uh, for the theatres and the venues that we operate, which is reflected across our, our sector. People are part of our our business and part of our, our world because they love to do to, to be a part of it and they love the community sense that comes with it. So when that's stripped away, that can have a, a hugely detrimental impact. So there's a, a lot of connectivity, a lot of keeping in contact. We use technology to Teams and Zoom to make sure that we have regular weekly updates and recorded broadcasts from myself to the team to answer as live any questions they might have about decisions we're making it's communication is the real thing it's constantly making sure that people feel connected to the organization mm. virtually or, or while, while, while they can't be uh physically but it's something we, we, you know, we're you know, monitoring all the time and um, you know we work with a number of specialist organizations to provide platforms for people to reach out if they've got concerns about their um, stress anxiety mental well-being while, while they're occupied this space and, and that's something we will continue to provide to, to our teams to, to support them until such time they can start 
coming back together again. Mm. You're certainly right about communication. It's so, so important. And technology has really helped in keeping those communication channels open. But for everybody, particularly, of course, when it comes to the hospitality industry, it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all technique, if you will. And sometimes, like, businesses can't operate without people within its premises for whatever reason. Um, With that sort of in mind and sort of how long this is likely to be in place for, I mean, how long do you think the hospitality industry is going to be like in something of a COVID hangover? Because even when ultimately we do, fingers crossed, have a vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an immediate and present danger, it then relies on consumer confidence to return quite quickly for things to start to pick up again. And that may well take a little bit of time. Yeah, you're right. And I think what we'll experience is various different uh, genres and age groups will return with confidence at different stages. I don't think we'll we'll see a consistent return to or, or an improvement in people's confidence to, to take part in the experience economy, whether it be restaurants, pubs, festivals, theatres and, and other such um, activities. We do know that there is a pent-up design and, and a frustration and, and, a, and you know, a keenness to return into some of our spaces by certain age groups and certain genres that, that have more confidence about going out. So we think certain parts of the sector will recover quicker than others. We're, we're seeing um, older adults and, and the concepts that they would normally enjoy uh, less confident, um, and we think that will take time. Uh, to, to return to sort of levels of normality we experienced prior to that. We do think certain genres, um, you know, and certain age groups are, are, will return much much quicker than that. And they are they are telling us that and mm. predominantly because they're buying tickets for experiences that they want to come and see predominantly from the spring onwards with the levels of activity and interest uh, and enthusiasm, you know, upwardly, you know, towards uh, this time uh, next year. Um, but I think, I think our audiences and our customers are going to behave differently and they will expect us to behave differently. So there is a requirement for us to be able to invest in technology, invest in in, in innovation to ensure that they have confidence on every step of the journey from when they first engage with us through to actually coming to our venues and enjoying the experiences that we put on. So it's it's going to look different. Uh, It's going to to feel different. And I, I think some of that is good. Uh, I think there's an awful lot that we've learned out of this that we can we can uh, adopt when we do start to return to normality that will improve the experiences that customers have with them, improve um, the experiences that our workforce have when they come into into the workplace, and will make us as an organisation. And, and I think this will be replicated across our sector, more more resilient um, and uh, more secure organisation um, in, into the future. Just what time frame? It's, it's impossible really to determine. Mm. Don't, don't have a, a crystal ball, but you know, there are certain markers that are telling us that audiences' confidence returns um, in sort of spring next year. But this, of course, that's that's very very fluid. Mm. Um, and you know, there, there are other factors such as you know disposable income, people's financial security, and their desire to be able to. Uh, have confidence in, in spending money on experiences. Um, we think that will return. And historically, uh, over the, the years, uh, the experience economy has been one of the most resilient economies at times of, of recession and times of economic challenges. The experience economy has found ways of adapting, being a- agile, 
and innovative to make sure that it, it is it, it not only survives but it meets the changing and evolving needs of, of its audiences and its customers. And I have no doubt we'll do exactly this, the same uh, under these circumstances. And moving away from the sort of doom and gloom side of COVID-19, they do say, don't they, that you learn much more about yourself and the people around you in times of adversity than when things are going well. So trying to find some silver lining in all of this, is there anything positive that you can say that maybe you can take from this and there's maybe things that you have learned about how resilient, um, of course, the business is through this? Yeah, I, I think there's, absolutely there are. I, mean, I think what... Um we have realised, and I think most importantly, the stakeholders in, in, involved in our, our business um, have realised um, just how important cultural assets, principal cultural assets such as the, the theatres and the entertainment venues that we operate are to their local communities, not just the kind of the economic impact, but the social, the social welfare, social value impact that, that they have. And it's, 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 enabled us to be able to ensure that we direct our effort and our resources ensuring that those community assets are delivering the kind of um, support and experience to the communities that they, they, they call out for. So I think you know it's been reassuring to know uh, that we uh, are playing, of, uh, have historically played a vital role in, in uh, supporting our local communities. Um, and, and I think we know, we know what we need to do to make sure that that remains uh, the case when we reopen, I think as a business, um, it's focused our minds very clearly on on you know, our, our, our principal you know, business model. What is what, what is important to us as a, as a business? What what matters? Um, what are we good at? Um, and it's 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 kept things simple. I think you know we as a team, and I'm you know very blessed to have an extraordinarily talented team of people that work with me. We have. We have worked, become much closer uh, as a team. Um, we have learnt to deal with some inc- incredible challenges collectively. Um, we've been able to ensure that we can uh, keep keep contact with our um, our workforce to make sure they're aware of what we're doing to support them. And I think it's taught us the importance of, of trust and honesty and transparency. And, and We've tried to make sure that when we are talking to each other, to our workforce and any other stakeholders, that we're honest um, with each other about the situation we face, the challenges we face. Uh, and that's held us in good stead. And I think, you know, that honesty, that, that focused on, on trust and transparency, you know, I'd like to think that that will be taken forward with us, um, with our workforce and anyone else that's involved in us. Um, and that can only be a good thing. So, you know, there have been some, some business lessons we've learned out of this, most definitely. But I think there's some, there's some uh, moral and, and some ethical lessons that we, we've learned out of it and recognised. And, and they certainly are good. And now looking to the uh, the next 12 months, just before we wrap things up on the programme today, Julian, where ideally would you like HQ Theatres and Hospitality to be? And uh, where what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the uh, the next year? Um, I know we've said already that we don't have a crystal ball, but in an ideal world, what is it that you are looking to do? Well, first and foremost, to, to survive, to make sure that we are here um, and in maybe looking slightly different to what we do now, but we are we are. We, you know, we, we survive this. I'm very confident that we will do, we will do that, um, and we will use all the lessons that we um, uh, have uh, have experienced over these months uh, and to apply them in, a, in a, a positive way going forward. And that we are 
most importantly, I'd like to think in 12 months' time we've thrown open our doors uh, and our, our communities we serve, audiences are back in thriving uh, and being enriched and enthralled by some of the stuff that goes on in our venues and our teams are back at work. Um, we know uh, that it's a long journey to get there, um, but get there we will and get there uh, and in, a, in a, a better, stronger position than maybe the organisation that we knew six months ago. Let's certainly hope so, Julian. I certainly love the uh, the positivity and the ambition there. And I think it is infectious and it's very important at this time. And we certainly do need a dose of it while morale is low because there's such a great entrepreneurial spirit in this country. We've seen so much adaptation. We've seen so much innovation over the last few months. And we're going to need an awful lot more of it to really chart a course through these troubled waters. And I think that just given how many variables there are still in this and also how enlightening it's been welcoming you on to discuss what's been happening behind the scenes at your business that it would be great to catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back on the show just to see how things are really starting to come together well listen thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to to talk to you today and it'd be a pleasure to come back and and, uh, update you on um, our journey over the next 12 months and i really hope there's some positive news to share by that point as well julian i'm thoroughly grateful for your time and i really enjoyed having you with us and most importantly as well to yourself and everybody at hq theatres and hospitality do take care and stay safe with all still going on yeah many thanks and, and my best wishes to, to everybody else as well and that also goes for all of our listeners tuning into the podcast today too please do look after yourselves stay well and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Julian Russell CEO at HQ Theatres and Hospitality onto the programme today um, next up on the show we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup Patrick hero Sir Jeff Hurst now during his professional football career Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs that included West Ham United and Stoke City among others but of course he is most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago it saw that England team lift the Jules Rimet trophy in what remains our only World Cup title and it also made to Jeff the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup. He'll be coming onto the programme to look back at that historic day in 1966, as well as discussing the importance of robust leadership throughout his career and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this most trying time. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and 
goodness me, yeah, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've often, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to... Uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making... This, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, 
this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be uh, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be 
prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager, who manages people, may not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, Young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, 
we was at three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbor's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so, I at that time, and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed. And I was maybe not as two footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two footed and. A lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I, I 
kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing all the videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. 
Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was very surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me what he was was a fantastic player he is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life and you need at the top and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years and it was a fantastic time for that particular club they won of course the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there mm. sadly they knocked us out in the semi-final 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes Maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend, and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing, or managing, or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela in fact that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways and I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed yes it is very good good advice yes so Jeff thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life career and leadership and it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further pleasure thank you enjoy, enjoy being part of the program thank you Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.